0: All right, we might go a few minutes over today, but hopefully we won't. It's, uh, we're going to cover a lot today. We're covering the entire book of Revelation, but it's an overview. Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day, thank you for this time to gather together, from, to hear from your word, to be encouraged, to worship you, to see your greatness, to praise your glory, and to fellowship. We thank you for the sweetness of knowing you. Uh, we pray that you would bless the sermon, you would open our eyes and ears and hearts to understand the scriptures, and we pray that you would open our minds as well, and we thank you for your grace and amen. All right, so today we are continuing our series called The GCF Vision. The vision, or the GCF vision, is a term we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on it in a while. At least not since Greg was teaching in RCF. Uh, But the, the GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And at the core of it, there's basically five of them. Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based instead of performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. And again, we're not saying that there aren't churches that have these. These things are spread sporadically throughout the church, but most churches at the moment don't have all five of these, but we believe God wants to change that. Anyways, we're on subsection five of this series called Having a Victorious Eschatology, and, uh, and we're continuing last week's sermon called Problems with Pessimistic Eschatology. Eschatology just means uh, beliefs about the future, and a lot of people think that the the Bible teaches that the church is going to become less and less successful uh, as time goes by, and the Bible just doesn't teach that. So we're, there's three main passages of Scripture, or sections of Scripture, that people get that idea from, but we're addressing them one by one to see whether or not they really teach that. Last week, we looked at Matthew 24. This week, we're going to look at the book of Revelation, and next time I speak, we'll, we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2. All right, so today we're talking about Revelation. I'm going to need some coffee. So a lot of people um, who have a pessimistic view of church progress hold certain passages in their Revelation for being their reason for believing uh, in pessimistic eschatology. And today we're going to address some of those passages. I'm not going to try to explain every detail in Revelation, because I don't know with certainty what every single detail in Revelation is talking about. But I am going to make the case that whatever the book of Revelation is talking about, most of what it's talking about happened in or near the first century, and it is most likely talking about God's judgment against the Jews in 70 A.D., But that being said, with all the studies of Revelation I've done this week, I have come to a a very agreeable conclusion. And it's actually in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 12, it said, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And of much study, brings weariness to the flesh. (laughs) That is definitely true. (laughs) And if you try to understand every detail in the book of Revelation, you will find that out. But a a little weariness never killed anyone. (laughs) All right, so let's start off with listing some interpretive principles regarding the book of Revelation. Just some interpretive principles to keep in mind. (sighs) Number one, uh, I would say the major theme of the Revelation is God's replacing the old Jerusalem with the new Jerusalem. That's why the book ends with the new Jerusalem the physical city of jerusalem will no longer be the capital location of what god is doing in the earth instead the capital location will simply be within the church universal in the book of revelation jerusalem is the old jerusalem is being replaced as god's capital for what he's doing with the new jerusalem and this idea fits with what we see in the gospels let's look at matthew 21 verse 43 Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The new Jerusalem is shown as a pure and spotless virgin bride, and the old Jerusalem is presented as an unfaithful prostitute of a wife who would rather have Caesar as king than Christ. Mm -hmm. Second interpretive principle I want us to keep in mind. The book of Revelation is not necessarily in chronological order. Now, let me give you some reason uh, for thinking that. First off, God is showing John a vision. It's basically a movie that God made that's playing in John's head. (laughs) And just like in a movie... Uh, the order of the scenes doesn't necessarily represent the chronological order of the details. John is telling us what order he saw the scenes in, but what order he saw the scenes in does not guarantee a strict chronological order of these events because he's watching a movie, basically, and he's describing to us the movie he saw. And you can tell that the scenes don't necessarily represent a chronological order of events because in the very middle of the book in chapter 12, there's a scene that represents Christ being born. If Christ hadn't been born yet, we've got a lot of problems. So, the book of Revelation is not necessarily in chronological order. Keep that in mind. The third Uh, interpretive principle I want us to keep in mind. The book of Revelation is a book filled with figurative imagery that symbolically represents real events. John is not seeing the events themselves happen. He is seeing a vision, a movie playing in his head, that's filled with figurative imagery that represents real events. I want to give um, some biblical reason for this idea. So a vision is a dream that you have while awake. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. A vision is a dream that you have while you're awake. And in the Bible, when God shows people future events in their dreams, they're almost always figurative and not the actual event. I'm going to give a a small list. Joseph and his brothers, those were two different dreams. They were figurative imagery. They weren't the actual event. Joseph and the cupbearer and the baker, they had dreams with... Uh, symbolic images in them. Joseph and Pharaoh, two different dreams. Neither of them were the literal event. They were both symbolic images. Uh, Gideon and the loaf of barley bread that rolled into the camp and hit the tent and crushed it. There was no literal loaf of bread. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar and the statue representing the kingdoms. Again, figurative imagery representing future events. Nebuchadnezzar and the tree, fig- figurative imagery representing real events. Daniel's vision about the beasts. Daniel's vision about the ram and the goat. Jeremiah's vision about the basket of figs. Almost every single time in the scriptures where God gives someone a dream or a vision where he shows them and not just didactically tells them what's going to happen in the future, it's almost always with uh, figurative imagery. And beyond that, I would like to add that even didactic prophecy can be figurative. Even things that aren't in a dream can be figurative when it comes to prophecy. Let's look at Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So God says that he's going to send the prophet Elijah to the land of Israel. Um, But let's look at Matthew 11 verses 12 through 15. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this was a didactic prophecy given. This wasn't a vision. This wasn't a dream. God just said, I'm going to send Elijah. And God was talking about John the Baptist. And there's nothing in the passage that explicitly gives warning or, uh, or hints that it's figurative. That's why I would say the I- literalism, which is the idea that unless a passage explicitly warns you that it might be figurative, it's wrong to assume it. But that idea is wrong. Because anybody in the Old Testament times who would have read this passage with that idea would have missed it. And a lot of people missed it. Let's look at Matthew 17, verses 10 through 12. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already came, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So the Son of Man will certainly come and suffer at their hands." So sorry to make things even more confusing. But um, in the Bible, dreams that show the events of the future are almost always figurative and even didactic prophecy can be figurative. John was a prophet like Elijah, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't Elijah reincarnated. God doesn't reincarnate people. Mm -hmm. And literalism is a a bad paradigm. It's a bad assumption. Fourth interpretive principle I want us to keep in mind. We use the clear and easy to understand parts of scripture to help us understand the parts that are unclear. This is just good good logic and good hermeneutics. If I tell you something and you're not sure what I said, but there's something else that you, you know you're sure what I meant by that, you use one to help you understand the other. We use the clear parts of Scripture to help us understand the unclear parts. All right, so those are four interpretive principles that I want us to keep in mind regarding the book of Revelation. Hmm. All right, I've got a premise for this sermon. My whole premise for this sermon is that most of the events of the book of Revelation happened in or near the first century. That's the whole point. I'm going to defend it with scripture. Most likely, the majority of the book is prophesying God's judgments on Jerusalem. But even if it isn't, either way, there is good reason to think that the majority of the book is referring to things that happened in or around the first century, whether it's talking about Jerusalem or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me give you four good reasons to think that. The first one. Well, first, I would just say, why would God want a letter written to churches in first century Asia Minor, mostly about things that have nothing to do with them? Why? God did, there was no restriction upon God to close the canon in the first century. If he wanted people in the 21st century to know this, he could have written to them directly. Why would God do that? And that's my weakest out of these four arguments, but it's worth considering. The next argument I want us to consider for why these things happened in the first century, or in or near the first century. The church in Philadelphia getting spared is only relevant if they're going to be alive in the time of the tribulation. Let's look at Revelation 3 verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So Christ told the Philadelphian believers that he would keep them from the hour of trial about to happen, which would not be relevant if they were all going to die of old age before it would ever happen anyways. In fact, I would dare say that this hour of trial, if it didn't happen in the first century, then what Jesus says to them is incorrect. If these things weren't, were meant to happen 2,000 years later, long after the believers in Philadelphia died, then the reason he kept them from the trial isn't because they obeyed him. It's because they were born 2,000 years too early. If I told Jeremiah... Hey, Jeremiah, the reason I'm not going to give you a billion dollars is because you didn't obey me yesterday. You'd you'd say I'm lying to my son. The real reason I'm not going to give him a billion dollars is because I don't have a billion dollars. And if I were to tell him I'm not giving you a billion dollars because you disobeyed me, I'd be being deceitful. And also, even if I had a billion dollars, no offense to Jeremiah, I love him. I wouldn't give it to him. But that being said, his obedience is irrelevant to whether or not I give him a billion dollars. So since it's irrelevant, me telling him that because he didn't obey is the reason why I'm not giving it to him is a lie. So that is one reason why I can't accept the idea that the majority of the book of Revelation is about the 21st century. there's two more good reasons. Uh, the next reason I want to discuss is the beast was already on the earth when the book of Revelation was written. Let's look at Revelation 17 verses 9 and 10. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven king, kings, five of whom have fallen one is, or one is alive right now, right now when the angel is speaking to John. Mm-hmm. One of the kings, so the beast is a kingdom, kingdoms have kings, mm-hmm. and one of the kings was alive when Revelation was written. Whether So I think it's Rome, but even if I'm wrong about that, It says plainly in the text that one of the kings was alive when the book was written, even if it isn't wrong. So that's my third reason for why it must be about things that happened in or near the first century. My my last reason for thinking that And I would say the strongest reason is that the angel said that the events from the book of Revelation were going to happen soon after it was written. Let's look at Revelation 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And you might say, well, you know, a, a day is like a thousand years with the Lord. Well, there's more reason than that. Let's keep going. There's reason to think soon doesn't mean 2,000 years later. Let's look at Revelation 22, verse 10. And he said to me, or that is the angel said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let's compare that to Daniel chapter 8, verse 26. Another angel tells Daniel about a similar type of vision. In Daniel 8, verse 26, The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. The opposite of what the angel told John. The angel tells John in Revelation 22, verse 10, Do not seal up the words, for the time is near. So Daniel was told, the time is far away, seal up the words of the vision I gave you. And John was told, the time is near, don't seal up the words. So the vision that Daniel was to seal up had to do with uh, medo Persia and Greece and Antiochus Epiphanes. And that is basically unanimously agreed upon by scholars, whether they're pre-mill or post-mill or amill. So the words Daniel was to seal up was for things that were going to happen at most 400 years after they were written. Mm -hmm. And I would even add something else to this argument that's almost unnecessary. But let's say someone objects and says, well, what if all the people who agree on that are wrong? And maybe Daniel's just actually talking about the end times. Maybe they're both just talking about the 21st century. Even then, it still doesn't make sense. It still doesn't add up. Because John was only 20% closer to the 21st century than Daniel was. Daniel was 2,500 years away from the 21st century. John was 2,000 years away from the 21st century. That's a 20% difference. That would be like if I told Teresa, hey, babe, we're going on a vacation next year. Don't pack yet. It's a year away. And then two and a half months later, I'm like, babe, the trip is nine and a half months away, start packing. That'd be terribly inconsistent of me. But it's very obvious if you read Daniel 8 against history and examine it, that it is talking about Medo-Persia and Greece and Antiochus Epiphanes, which is 400 years after Daniel's time. So Daniel was told to seal the words because 400 years later is too long for it to be needed now. And John was told to not seal the words, because the time is near. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm wrong about it talking about Jerusalem, whatever it's talking about, I'm confident it happened in or near the first century. (sighs) All right, we've got a lot of reading to do. I'm going to give a small sampling of plausible first century interpretations. I'm not saying that all these interpretations are necessarily certainly correct, but they're plausible and some of them are pretty good. The reason I'm giving a sampling is because going through the whole book would take its own series, and also because there's many plausible first century interpretations for various details of a lot of verses, and out of all the plausible ones, not only do I not have time to read all of them, but I'm not sure which ones are correct and which ones aren't. But again, either way, I am very confident that whatever the book of Revelation is talking about, it had to have happened in or near the first century. It just can't be about, mostly about things 2,000 years later. That just doesn't fit the book. But anyways, let's get into it. Let's read Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse... And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a a pail of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of a fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they had, uh, witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. Holy and true, how long before he will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened us the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell, and the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain every island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne." and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? So I do want to again remind us that the book of Revelation is filled with figurative images. But what do these things mean? And if the book of Revelation is mostly about things that happened in or near the first century, what could this be about? I'm going to try to give some ideas. Uh, So, Verse 4 says, Out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So last week we examined Matthew 24, and we saw very strong reason to think that most of Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And the interpretation I'm going to give for this is that this is probably talking about 70 A.D or the Great Tribulation that lasted from 66 to 70 AD. So from 66 to 70 AD, there was civil war in Jerusalem, civil war in Rome, and a war between Rome and the Jews. And more than a million people died just in the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. And cities weren't as dense back then as they are now. So a million people being killed in one city in the first century is a lot. Uh, now let's look at verse 6. So verse 6 says, And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. So he's talking about the price of food being unusually high. And the price of food being unusually high references famine. It's symbolic of famine. When there is a famine, the price of food goes up. Inflation might make us feel like there's a famine, but there's not. (laughs) We are not in a real famine. Um, But during, like we saw last week, there was a a bad famine in Jerusalem during the siege of 70 AD that caused many people in Jerusalem to die of starvation during the war. Let's look at verse 8 as well. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And there was given him authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and with pestilence and the wild beasts of the earth. So, again, I wouldn't say with complete and utter certainty that this is talking about Jerusalem from 66 to 70 AD, but I would say pretty confidently that it it probably is. Um, But I want to say something about the the Greek word that gets translated earth here. Well, for one thing, there was lots of death happening in the tribulation from 66 to 70 AD in Jerusalem. Uh, if you didn't hear last week's message, it's on our website. Uh, but we, there was a lot of people who died. People dying by famine and by the sword. And typically when there's famine, there's also pestilence because immune systems get weakened without food. But anyways, the word translated earth here is the Greek word ge. It's it's spelled G-E. It can be used to mean the whole world, or it can also be used to just mean land or ground. I want to look at two other places this is used uh, in in Matthew. Uh, Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes it is used to mean the whole earth, but I'm going to give two instances in Matthew where it's not used to mean the whole planet. Matthew 2, verse 21. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. The word translated land here is the same Greek word. But it's not referring in this chapter to the entire planet. It's referring to the land of Israel. Let's also look at Matthew 9, verse 31. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Now, ESV translates this district, and I think NASB translated, translates it land, but this is the same Greek word again. The word translated district here is the Greek word ge, which uh, in Revelation 6 is being translated earth. So this isn't necessarily a fourth of humanity being killed. This could be a fourth of the people of Israel being killed in 66 to 70 A.D. Uh, So in verses 9 through 11, there's this mention of martyrs. Um, And these martyrs cry out with a loud voice. They're they're crying out to God to avenge them. And God is saying, wait a bit longer. Uh, Wait for the guilt of, you know, whoever's killing these martyrs to be filled up. And again, the Greek word used earth here is the same word that could be referring to the land of Israel. But let's let's look at Matthew twenty three, verses twenty nine through thirty-six. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of whom you will flog in synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So we saw last week how truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Is talking about Matthew 24, which is talking about the great tribulation uh, that happened in Jerusalem from 66 to 70 AD. But anyways, this this idea of the, the martyrs crying out for vengeance and God telling them, wait until the guilt is filled up, wait until even more are killed, reminds me of this verse in Matthew where Jesus is telling the Pharisees, I'm going to send you messengers and you're going to kill them and you will fill up the guilt of your fathers and then judgment will come against you. The last thing I want to talk about from this chapter is at the end when they're hiding in caves. In verse 16, uh, it says, calling to the mount." Well, you know, it talks about how the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the poor will hide themselves in the caves trying to hide from God's judgment. Uh, And Josephus records that something exactly like this happened in first century Jerusalem. I'm going to read his quote. So now, the last hope was in the caves and caverns underground, whither, if they could once fly, they did not expect to be searched for, but endeavored that after the whole city should be destroyed and the Romans gone away, they might come out again and escape them. This was no better than a dream of theirs, for they were not able to hide either from God or from the Romans. So this hiding in caves was happening in the siege of, during the siege of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., So anyways, that's a plausible interpretation for Revelation 6. And again, I'm just giving some ideas of what various aspects of Revelation could be talking about, but whether or not they're correct, you know, how likely they are, you can weigh that out. But I would still stand with certainty saying that whatever the book of Revelation is talking about, it had to have been in or near the first century. Let's look at Revelation chapter 12. Revelation twelve thirteen through 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help uh, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right, so... To make Revelation even more complicated, one thing can represent more than one thing. This woman represents Mary, the mother of Jesus. She also represents the church. Um, I can say that confidently because I'm sure the dragon did not go to wage war against the rest of Mary's children. She only had so many. (laughs) This is talking about the church. This is talking about waging war on Christians. But anyways... So this woman, the church, went away into the wilderness to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Or one year, two years, and half a year. A.k.a. three and a half years. So one thing that this could be referring to um, is the Christians in Judea who fled to the mountains exactly three and a half years before the destruction of Jerusalem which we looked at last week. And if if you'd like references for that, you can look at last week's sermon on our podcast. But the, the Christians in Judea fled Judea to avoid the coming destruction exactly three and a half years before 70 AD, before the destruction happened. So this could be a reference to that. All right, let's get to Revelation 13. I'm not doing that bad on time. Let's read verses 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, or ten crowns, on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his, his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marvel, marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and every people and language and nation. And all those who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written uh, before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints. So again, I'm I'm giving interpretations that I consider likely. And I, I think that the beast is most likely Rome. Let me give some reasons for that. Uh, Well, let me talk about a few things. Let's talk about verse 4. Verse 4 says, And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who can fight against it? So if this is talking about Rome, they're saying, you know, who is like the Roman Empire? Who can fight against the Roman Empire? Which in the days of the Roman Empire is what people would have thought, or at least in the first century. Mm -hmm. Who can conquer the Roman Empire? I also want to point out that um, this is saying so it's saying they worshiped the dragon uh, for he had given his authority to the beast but they're worshiping the beast so beasts represent kingdoms the beasts in Daniel's dream represented kingdoms and the horns represent kings so this is obviously a kingdom that much is indisputable um, So people are worshiping this kingdom, and because this kingdom is behind the scenes getting its power from Satan, God is saying that those who are worshiping this kingdom are guilty of worshiping Satan, whatever kingdom it's talking about. Let's uh, look at verses 5 and 7. So the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And then let's look at verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. It doesn't just say that it could, that it had the power to, it was allowed to. So I think part of its authority is God allowing it to make war on the saints. Revelation has a lot to do with martyrdom. I take this to mean killing the saints. So part of this kingdom's authority that God allows it to have for 42 months is to kill Christians. And 42 months does happen to be exactly how long Nero's persecution of Christians was. Nero's persecution of Christians was the first instance of systemic persecution from the Roman Empire against Christians. And his persecution started in 64 AD when he blamed Christians for the fires in Rome, and it lasted 42 months because 42 months later he was forced to commit suicide because of a military coup uh, in 68 AD. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from historian Tacitus. Tacitus. Tacitus described Nero's persecution saying that Nero inflicted very different, unheard-of tortures on those who detested for their abominable crimes were commonly called Christians. Nero would have Christians burned alive as human torches at his parties for entertainment. Um... But yeah, I think that Nero's persecution was exactly 42 months. That's verifiable in history. From when he started persecuting Christians to when he died, exactly 42 months. And also, it was common for Roman emperors to consider themselves gods, a.k.a. to utter haughty and blasphemous words, and Nero thought of himself as the god Apollo, incarnate. Uh, I want to make two more comments about the beast of Revelation 13. Uh, this may be or probably is the same beast from Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. Let's look at Daniel 7, verse 7. And most scholars think the fourth beast in Daniel 7 is Rome. Because in Daniel 7, Daniel is seeing a vision of kingdoms that are to come after Babylon. And most scholars think that the fourth one in Daniel's vision is Rome. But let's look at the similarities between the two beasts. Let's look at Daniel 7, verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before, and it had ten horns." So it might be the same beast because it has the same number of horns. None of the other beasts in Daniel 7 have ten horns. Uh, That's just something to consider. And we're, we're going to see even more evidence for the beast being Rome when we get to chapter 17. But let's turn to the last verse of Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's try to clear up some confusion. So John is likely referring to uh, the practice of, I think it's called gematria. Gematria is the practice of assigning a numerical value to a name a word or a phrase, by reading it as a number or by uh, sometimes using an alphanumeric cipher. So people would assign numbers to letters of the Hebrew alphabet and then add them up, and that's the number of a word or the number of a name. And this was at least somewhat common enough of a thing back in that time. Because there's a well-known example of a bit of graffiti found in the city of Pompeii, which reads, I love the girl whose number is 545. He's not talking about Arby's. (laughs) (laughs) Where's Sam? Uh. (laughs) But anyways, you know, there's a common known piece of graffiti from the first century or so saying, I love the girl whose number reads 545. This was a thing people did. And Neron-Kaiser, the Hebrew transliteration of Nero-Caesar, would have had the values 50, 200, 6, 50, 100, 60, and 200, which together do total 666. So this could be talking about Nero. But why would John bother to be cryptic? Well, I think if he is talking about Nero, it would make sense that he'd be cryptic. Uh, So John's in exile at the moment. And odds are, someone in the Roman military is likely going to read this letter before it gets delivered. And they're not really too fond of people saying bad things about Nero. Mm -hmm. So if he writes directly in this, if he is talking about Nero, if he were to just say it uh, outright, this letter would have never gotten to the churches. The Roman military wouldn't have put up with that. So that's something to consider about that. Uh, Let's look at, we're kind of jumping through this. It's difficult to cover the book of Revelation in a single sermon, but if I'd covered the whole thing in detail, it'd be its own series, and that's beyond the scope of this series. So let's make another jump to chapter 16. Let's read chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way of the kings from the east. This also might be kind of like a poetic throwback, as it were, to the destruction of Babylon, because Babylon, which was destroyed before John wrote Revelation, uh, its downfall happened because, I think it was Alexander the Great, the Euphrates ran under the city of Babylon, and Alexander the Great uh, caused diverted the water so that him and his soldiers could walk under the city gates to invade Babylon. And that was the downfall of Babylon, which Revelation, coincidentally, mentions a downfall of a city whose nickname is Babylon. But also, this could be a reference to, hopefully I pronounced these names right, King Sohem. Uh, Sohamas, who ruled the kingdom of Sapphine on the east bank of the Euphrates, and to King Antiochus, who was the king of uh, Kamageni, on the west bank of the Euphrates. And these kings offered military leadership and aid in the defeat of Jerusalem. Kings from the east came to Aid in the defeat of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Could be a reference to that. All right. Uh, This is the last chapter we're going to look at, so we won't go too many minutes over. We should end pretty soon. But let's read Revelation 17. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 18. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment... Of the great prostitute, who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. By the way, just like the beast from chapter 13, Mm -hmm. seven heads, ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. By the way, as a passing comment, comment, so she's adorned in purple and scarlet and gold and jewels, which is the same garb that the priests wore as part of their official uniforms in the temple. Um. I don't think that's a coincidence. The woman, uh, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is, has not yet come." When he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings that have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand their power and authority to the beast, and they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings." And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman... And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So, some comments on the beast and the prostitute. Prostitute is used many times throughout the Old Testament to describe unfaithful Israel. Typically, when a people are being called a prostitute, almost every time in the Old Testament, it's talking about unfaithful Israel when Israel fell into adultery. Also, drunk with the blood of the saints is probably a reference to Jerusalem's persecution of Christians. Um, We read earlier about how Jesus said that I will send you prophets and messengers and you will kill them. Uh, But let's also look at Luke 13, verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot happen that a prophet would perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus is talking about how much Jerusalem kills his messengers. He's being kind of sarcastic here. There's no way a prophet would die outside of Jerusalem. All right, let's, let's talk about the, the evidence in this passage that the beast is probably Rome. So he says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And there are seven kings, five of whom has fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Uh, So first of all, the, the prostitute is sitting on the beast. I would say that kind of represents Jerusalem's relationship with Rome. Jerusalem had its power at that moment because of Rome. Even though Jerusalem crucified Christ... It was by Rome's power. Yes. Jerusalem didn't crucify people. Romans crucified people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jerusalem was ruled by Rome at the time, and they were, in that sense, sitting on Rome's authority. That's that's how they had the authority to uh, kill or the power to kill Christ. So. He talks about seven hills, and Rome was known as the city of seven hills. It was a common nickname for it. If I mention to you the word sin city, you know what I'm talking about. If I mention to you the city of angels, you know what I'm talking about, because cities have nicknames. And Rome had a nickname, the city of seven hills. Some Roman coins that were made even had images of the goddess Roma, who was the personification of Rome, sitting on seven hills. I would also say that I think the... the so the, some things represent more than one thing. The heads represent hills, and they also represent kings. I think the seven kings are likely the first seven Caesars. Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula... Claudius, Nero, and Galba. So the sixth one, he says, is. The sixth one is alive at the time of this writing. I think the sixth, so the sixth Caesar was Nero, and I think he's saying Nero is alive at the time of this writing. Galba was the next one, and Galba indeed only was a Caesar for a short amount of time. Galba reigned for seven months. He was the Caesar after Nero, and then he was murdered in a coup. So it also says the beast will make the prostitute desolate and naked and will devour her flesh and burn her with fire. This is probably a prophecy about Rome destroying Jerusalem like we talked about last week. Rome did burn Jerusalem with fire. All right, so let's get to the last part of Revelation 17, that last sentence. The last sentence is The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. I'm going to mention why I think that is a reference to Jerusalem. The term the great city is used seven times in the book of Revelation. Five of those times is in reference to Babylon. But what's Babylon? It's not literally the city of Babylon, Babylon was destroyed. So what does this term, the great city, refer to? Well, let's look at the other two times that it gets used in Revelation, uh, where it's not, per se, referring to Babylon. The first time in the book of Revelation that the term, the great city, is used is in Revelation 11, verse 8, where it is explicitly talking about Jerusalem. Revelation 11, verse 8 says, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So this is explicitly talking about Jerusalem in chapter 11. Let's look at the other instance of the term the great city is used before chapter 17. Revelation 16, verses 18 and 19. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So I want to point out verse 19. The great city was split into three parts. And in the next part of his sentence, and the cities of the nations fell. So that word translated nations also gets translated Gentiles. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it that way, and that's probably what it means, the great city was split, which is contrasted with, and the cities of the Gentiles fell. If this is a Gentile city, why not say, and the other cities of the Gentiles fell? This is probably being contrasted with Gentile cities, meaning it's not a Gentile city. So that's another reason to consider that this would be Jerusalem. But, but if it is Jerusalem, in what way did Jerusalem rule over the kings of the earth? So I'm not quite sure about this one, but one possibility is that the reason it's called the city that has dominion over the kings of the earth is because at this point in the story, Jerusalem is still the capital of what God's doing in the world. Let's look at Matthew 5 verses 34 through 35. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Jesus wasn't talking about Herod. Jesus is saying that at this point in history, Jerusalem is the city of the king who has dominion over every king. And if, if the prostitute is Jerusalem, then the judgment that gets mentioned in verse 1, because he says, come see the judgment, is the judgment against Jerusalem in 70 AD. Mm-hmm. We're going to finish this in less than 10 minutes. All right, I'm going to respond to some potential objections. Sadly, I don't have re- time to respond to all the potential objections. Uh, maybe one day I'll do a series on this some years from now, but this takes a lot of time to study. Um, I'm going to mention three potential objections. First, if the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 is at Christ's second coming, why would the majority of the book be about events in the first century? Well, I've already given reason to think that the majority of the book is about events in the first century, but one reason for the difference, or one plausible reason, could be the millennium in chapter 20, which would separate the first part from the final judgment. So, I'm not totally decided on what I think about the millennium, but I just want to get you to consider some things. First off, the thousand years doesn't have to be exact. Let's look at Psalm 50, verses 8 through 10. "'Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continual before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills.'" Now, let me tell you what the psalmist isn't saying. The psalmist is not saying that the cattle on the thousand and first hill don't belong to God. He's not saying that. And nor is he saying that at this time in history, there is exactly 1,000 hills of cattle on them, no more, no less. He's not saying that. There were more than 1,000 hills with cattle on them at that time. He's saying it's just a point to mean a large number. God is just saying he doesn't need human sacrifices because he owns everything. Amen. But the thousand in this verse is certainly not literally, mathematically, one thousand. So it wouldn't be the first time God used the term 1,000 to just mean a lot. Secondly, if the millennium does start in the first century, God has reason to be vague about it. Because if the millennium starts in the first century and he tells you exactly how long it's going to be, then everyone can predict when the second coming will be. And God seems to have reason to want to conceal when the second coming will be. So if the millennium does start in the first century, then God would be vague about it. Because it would be against his purposes to to tell people exactly when the second (sighs) coming is going to happen. And just one more thing to consider. And again, I'm not totally set on what my interpretation of the millennium is. But... um, One more thing to consider is that all the other passages in the New Testament that talk about Christ's second coming, none of them imply a gap between his second coming and the eternal state or the final judgment. None of them. That's just something to think about. You can decide for yourself what you want to think about the millennium. Second objection I'm going to deal with. We will be done by 1215. Um, What does Revelation 1615 mean? Let's read Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he might not go about naked and be seen exposed. So this is mentioned before the prostitute is mentioned, but he's not necessarily talking about the second coming, and he's, I think he's just talking about his coming against Jerusalem and judgment. But I can prove that it's not necessarily talking about the second coming because of Revelation 3, verse 3. Revelation 3, verse 3 says, so Jesus is talking to one of the seven churches, and he says to them, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. The second coming isn't coming against Christians, but Jesus is talking about a coming like a thief where he'd be coming against a church. And this coming that he's talking about is apparently conditional based on whether or not they repent he says if you will not wake up i will come like a thief so jesus is talking about coming like a thief here and he's definitely not talking about the second coming because the second coming isn't conditional on unrepentance nor is it coming against christians all right last objection we're going to deal with um so the dating of the book of the Revelation could potentially be a problem. Well, there's a number of people who think Revelation was written in 90 A.D., and there's others who think it was written in 60 A.D. And if it was written in 90 A.D., then it's probably not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But again, I would still say quite confidently that whatever it's talking about, even if I'm wrong about it talking about Jerusalem, it only makes sense that it's talking about something that happened in or near the first century, either way. But if it was written later than 70 AD, then it's probably not talking about 70 AD. But I think there's reason in the book to think it must have been written before 70 AD. Let's look at Revelation 1 verse 7. Uh, Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So this is... Quote, this is kind of like a quote. This is basically the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 24. But we saw last week that Matthew 24 is clearly talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. I also want to point out Revelation 11 verses 1 and 2. A reference to the temple. And it's not the heavenly temple. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and it's never been rebuilt. Other places in Revelation... John talks about the heavenly temple, but there's no chance this is talking about the heavenly temple because the heavenly temple will not be trampled by humans. No chance. That is not what that's talking about. Couldn't be. And if, if this was written after the destruction of the temple, I find it strange that John would mention the temple without at all referencing that historical event. I find that quite unlikely. All right, so we're getting to the conclusion. I want to say just before the conclusion, out of all the common interpretive systems that exist, whether you think Revelation is about the future or the past, none of them are without difficulty. None of them are without difficulty. There isn't one that's just totally clearly correct. If there was, we would have stopped arguing about it. They all have difficulties. And if anyone doesn't admit that they all do, that person isn't being realistic. But again, that being said, I still believe that whatever it's talking about, it must have been in or near the first century. The thing that the angel tells John is just too big of an issue. Don't seal the words because the prophecy is soon. When Daniel was told to seal up the words because it's not soon, it's 400 years away. That's too big of an issue. I also want to mention that there are multiple different first century interpretations that are out there in books and on the internet, and I did not have time to look at each of them, and I might not have presented the case as well as it should have been presented. And for that, I apologize. But uh, honestly, it just would have taken me too much time. All right, in conclusion, the book of Revelation is a fairly complicated and somewhat confusing book. And there are some things I just didn't explain because I don't know what they mean. Nevertheless, there's still compelling evidence to strongly consider that the majority of the book of Revelation already happened in the first century AD or around it. And there's also compelling evidence to consider that it's talking about God's judgment against Jerusalem. And as we'll continue to see next week, the Bible doesn't give grounds or reason to think that the world is just going to keep getting worse and worse. Matthew 24 isn't talking about that, and Revelation quite likely isn't talking about that. And also, if you would like to ha- check out a book where somebody does attempt to explain Revelation verse by verse, the Great Unveiling by Michael Kelly is a decent book. I would, yeah, <sighs> let's get to our communion meditation. Twelve fifteen exactly. Uh, let's look at Revelation seventeen verses thirteen and fourteen. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called faithful and true. So I just love the way the angel words this. Uh, they, he says, and the lamb will conquer them, because he is lord of lords and king of kings. To me, it almost reads like the angel saying, well, of course the beast is going to lose. Duh. Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. There's no way he wouldn't conquer. I also want to read Jeremiah 20, verse 11. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he greatly loves us. And because he's on our side, all those who are truly his will overcome. So let's praise him as we come to the table.